0: You have tuned in to the second episode of a special three-part series of the Found in Philadelphia podcast. We're picking up right where we left off in the first episode, with the city in a time of crisis, when citizens of every color and social class suddenly find themselves facing a common enemy. And while Philadelphians face the crisis together, there's both fear and hope that this moment will change the city forever. And if you see parallels to Philadelphia in the time of COVID-19... You're not alone. So if you haven't listened to the first episode yet, you should stop and listen to it before continuing with this one. Welcome to Found in Philadelphia, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Philadelphia's past so that we can better understand the present. Because our history matters. I'm your host, Lori Amit. With each episode, I hope that you'll learn something new, do things a little differently, and be inspired to go discover some of this history for yourself, right here in the city of brotherly love. The first episode introduced us to the life and times of Philadelphian Carolyn Rebecca LeCount. We followed her from childhood, through her education, and finally to graduation in the summer of 1863. LeCount is part of a tight-knit group of aspiring, well-educated African-Americans in Philadelphia who are teachers, activists, and community leaders. But Black Philadelphians seem to be left behind by the modernizing city and the ongoing Civil War. However, as General Lee's Confederate army pushes north into Pennsylvania, the Union finally calls on Black men to join up. And despite ongoing discrimination, thousands of Black men are volunteering and heading off to war by the end of June 1863. And on July 1st, the Battle of Gettysburg begins. We typically think of the Battle of Gettysburg as three days of fighting across the rolling farmland of central Pennsylvania. But by July 1st, 1863, the battle is already on its way to Philadelphia, and it will unfold over weeks, beginning with early chaos in late June as people flee to Philadelphia from the central part of the state, putting as much distance as they can between themselves and the front lines. Then Philadelphia hears the news of a great battle, with very few details and a great deal of confusion. The news is followed by wave after wave of wounded soldiers, men who survived the battle in the field hospital triage units and are placed on train cars and shipped east, where they overflow Philadelphia's hospitals, large and small. Tents are set up to serve even more and hospital staff ask Philadelphians to donate clean linen to help make up for a shortage of bandages. And then there are weeks of uncertainty for people like Emily Davis, whose father lived in Harrisburg. Remember, Emily Davis is the young dressmaker and contemporary of Carolyn LeCount, who kept a diary during the Civil War years. As they await news of their loved ones who are caught up in the battle, they must be wondering, what happened to them? Did they survive? Are they hurt? Philadelphia must have felt very close to the front lines of the war during that summer. And what were women like Carolyn LeCount doing during these dark days? As the men are training for war, LeCount and the other women in her community are organizing to do their part. With Philadelphia as a key part of the Union war machine, there's a great deal needed here to provide assistance to soldiers who are away from their loved ones and to help the wounded with food, writing material, and bandages. It's likely that LeCount is particularly interested in assisting at Philadelphia's hospitals because she's enrolled in the Female Medical College of Pennsylvania with her classmate, Rebecca Cole, though LeCount will never complete her medical training. In late July, LeCount joins up with 13 other women, including Emily Davis and Rebecca Cole's sisters, to form the Ladies' Union Association, with the purpose of helping sick and wounded soldiers. There are already a great number of ladies' societies offering aid to soldiers, but very few organized to focus on the needs of black soldiers. And LeCount and her associates know that it's unlikely that white women will extend their assistance to black soldiers. The Ladies' Union Association plans and successfully runs a fair to raise funds in January 1864, despite being rejected from their first venue when the building owners realized that they were not just ladies of the union, but black ladies of the union. The fair is ultimately held at Sansom Street Hall, where the Institute for Colored Youth held their graduation a year earlier. These women are organizing, gathering supplies, holding meetings, and distributing needed items to the many hospitals as well as to the soldiers at Camp William Penn. All of this requires traveling all over the city, far from the 7th Ward where these women live, to the camp way up north in Cheltenham, and to the hospitals in West Philly and way out on the Derby Road. As the women of the Ladies' Union Association note in their annual report of 1864, their inability to ride in the streetcars is severely limiting the amount of good they can do. They're finding it very difficult to get to the places they need to go, here is Civil War historian Judith Giesberg from Villanova University on what this means.
1: There's something very local, you know, that's prohibiting them from participating in the war at the level that they want to. And it's access to streetcars. And they begin to push this issue and very savvy and smart sort of make it an argument about the war and about patriotism, about loyalty
0: Black women are on the move like never before in Philadelphia. And as the battles of the Civil War are coming to an end, the fight to integrate Philadelphia streetcars is beginning to heat up. To be clear, the Black community had been contesting their exclusion from Philadelphia streetcars from the very beginning, when the streetcars first appeared before the war. These early efforts focused on persuading influential white Philadelphians to support the integration of the streetcars but this didn't get them very far. The Black community also tried to fight their exclusion in the courts, but judges inevitably ruled in favor of the streetcar companies, finding that it was completely reasonable and legal to exclude Black people from riding with white people. During the Civil War years, Philadelphia's streetcar conductors continued to refuse to pick up Black riders, typically with a nasty use of the N-word. In some cases, conductors even physically remove Black riders, often with the assistance of other white men on the street, who seem perfectly happy to jump in and start a small mob to help out. This willingness of the white community to engage in violence against the Black community is one of the most disturbing parts of the streetcar fights. But the younger generation of Black activists, the generation of Carolyn LeCount and Emily Davis, they're fighting back. Judith Giesberg explains how this complicated things.
1: Uh, Her generation of young people, young African Americans, are willing to sort of confront these episodes of slavery reaching into Philadelphia, you know, of racism in the street of Philadelphia. They're more willing in some ways to, to, to be confrontational than their parents' generation, and that causes friction between these generations.
0: During the war, Philadelphia racks up a shamefully long list of distinguished African Americans who are denied or are forcibly removed from its streetcars. The list includes the household names of Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. Tubman reportedly suffered injuries to her arm and shoulder when a streetcar conductor enlisted some friends on the street to help him put her off. I like to think that conductor couldn't have put Tubman off by himself. Rides were also denied to other celebrities that we should know more about today, such as the poet and lecturer Frances Ellen Watkins Harper and also the former slave-turned-Union-Navy war hero and later U.S. Representative for South Carolina, Captain Robert Smalls. And then, of course, there are the members of the Philadelphia Black community who are continually subjected to this humiliating exclusion, including the leaders of the Black churches. Reverend William Alston, the head of the church that LeCount attends, is denied a ride on the streetcar, even when he begs for help because his young son has fallen sick and needs to get home. This is how things go through most of the Civil War. But early in 1865, the streetcar battle begins to shift. Streetcars in other major U.S. cities are integrating, following successful cases brought against the streetcar companies by Black women who had been physically forced off the cars. They should be remembered here. Sarah Fawcett in Cincinnati, Charlotte Brown in San Francisco, and Ellen Anderson in New York City. And these cases were carefully followed in the Philadelphia press. Then in January 1865, there's a large meeting in Philadelphia to discuss future steps in the streetcar fight, which leads to coordinated action a few days later in the Pennsylvania legislature. Morrow Lowry, state senator from Erie, sponsors a bill to integrate the streetcars statewide, and his bill narrowly passes in the Senate. Now, even though the bill would be killed in committee, it is Senator Lowry's speech on the Senate floor that gives a sense of the changes coming. In support of his streetcar integration bill, Lowry gives a moving personal account of seeing a one-legged Black war veteran turned away from a streetcar. And then he scolds the members of the legislature with this. Behold the spectacle of a people calling upon the Black man to help save their government, and then basely denying them civil and social rights under the government which they have helped to save. Black men's sacrifices for the Union are starting to change public opinion. Or are they? Historian Chris Hayashida-Knight at California State University, Chico, reminds us that white Northerners are fighting the Civil War to end slavery and save the Union. However,
2: The Civil War is not a fight over whether Black people are equal. It's a fight over the institution of slavery. But there's no presumption by Northerners in general that Black people deserve the same social rights as white people.
0: At the end of January 1865, the streetcar companies in Philadelphia are feeling enough political pressure that they agree to hold what is a complete sham vote, full of irregularities and dirty tricks. They ask their white riders to vote on whether blacks should be allowed to ride in all the cars. Not surprisingly, the vast majority of the ballots come in marked no, exactly the result that the streetcar companies want. And on the same day of the sham vote in Philadelphia, the U.S. Congress is voting to pass the 13th Amendment abolishing slavery. The disparities between these two events does not escape notice. Alfred Love, a Philadelphia-born activist and later nominee for the Nobel Peace Prize, remarks, to think that when the nation was voting freedom, we were voting exclusion of colored people from our cars. Despite these setbacks, events are unfolding fast in 1865. Octavius Caddo, now a principal at the Institute for Colored Youth, and other young Black activists are organizing the Equal Rights League, a national group working directly with state legislatures to advocate for access to public libraries and theaters, schools and colleges, jury boxes and ballot boxes, and of course, streetcars. These young men are done waiting and are thinking like modern political lobbyists, trying to advance their agenda. Then on April 9th, General Lee surrenders at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. The 8th Regiment Infantry U.S. Colored Troops, which had mustered and trained in Philadelphia at Camp William Penn, they're there to witness this event. Two days later, Abraham Lincoln gives a speech in support of black men, especially black soldiers, being given the right to vote. And then Lincoln is shot three days later. Back in Philadelphia, Carolyn LeCount and Emily Davis hear the shocking news during a meeting of the Ladies' Union Association. The North's initial jubilation turns to mourning. As Davis writes in her diary that night, these are strange times. And while Black men have been taking the fight for equality to the battlefield and the statehouse, Black women are on the front lines of the streetcar battle here in Philadelphia. They know that fighting in the war is critical at the national level and that working with lawmakers is also going to be important at the state level. But Black women also know that their daily lives won't improve until change happens right here on the streets of Philadelphia. And they're willing to put their bodies on the line in small acts of daily resistance to make it happen. Historian Giesberg explains what is happening as Black women ride the streetcars.
1: You know, when they're standing up on these streetcars, they are performing for a white audience as well, these acts of resistance. Do, they're doing these, this kind of work for their own families all the time within their communities, but suddenly, you know, in these very public spaces, they sort of crossed over into the white neighborhoods, and they have traversed some um, sort of invisible border, and they now confront white people with the reality of what it is that they're asking for.
0: Here are just a few stories from 1865 to give you a sense of what these women faced. In the spring of 1865, there's the case of Mrs. Derry. Her case is heard by a progressive Republican judge, and she's one of the few women to be awarded damages in a case against the streetcar companies. Mrs. Derry was returning home from church, where she had been working with other women to provide comforts for Union soldiers. She was initially allowed to board the Lombard and South streetcar, which ran right through the 7th Ward. But then the conductor came to collect her fare and noticed that she was Black. He stopped the streetcar and told Mrs. Derry to get off. She refused, and then things got ugly. The white streetcar conductor grabbed this middle-aged woman, put his hands on her, and tried to remove her from the car. Mrs. Derry resisted, presumably by holding onto a bench or hand strap. According to the police report, the conductor proceeded to call for help from two men on the street, and together they hit, kicked, and forcibly threw this woman from the car. This incident was so violent that Mrs. Derry's clothes were torn and she suffered personal injuries. The judge awarded Mrs. Derry $50 in damages, the equivalent of around $800 today. But despite this ruling, the laws didn't change. Streetcar companies probably considered this progressive judge to be an outlier and that this wasn't a threat to their business, which was sadly likely to be true. In the fall of 1865, two black women endured a terrifying ride on the Spruce and Pine Street car. This story was reported in the newspaper by a white man who witnessed it firsthand. These women boarded the streetcar at 8th Street, en route to visit their wounded soldier husbands in hospital. At 11th Street, the conductor collecting fares realized that these women were black and told them to get off. When the women refused, the driver drove the horses at a furious pace across town, threatening to take them to the depot to be, quote, whitewashed. When a white rider requested to stop at 19th Street, the streetcar made as quick a stop as possible to trap the women on board. But one of the women was able to jump off, only to be attacked by one of these ubiquitous groups of white thugs on the street. The eyewitness got off the car soon after, so we don't know what happened to the other woman stuck on the rampaging streetcar. But it was stories like this that made the black community afraid of riding Philadelphia streetcars. And Philadelphia's white community is not just standing by silently, Some of them seem eager to engage in these acts of terrorism. While others, like the white man who wrote to the paper about these soldiers' wives, he seems mostly concerned about the respectable white women who see this shocking violence. At the end of his letter to the paper, the eyewitness to these assaults on black women wants to know, When respectable white ladies enter a streetcar, they can have some surety that they will not be insulted and their feelings outraged by such disgusting behavior. The newspaper of Mother Bethel AME Church, The Christian Recorder, noted that 10 local Black women had been physically forced off of Philadelphia streetcars over a five-year period. They had more than their feelings outraged in these confrontations. Three of these women were officers of the Ladies' Union Association, and one of these incidents happened to Carolyn LeCount herself. The newspaper doesn't mention the untold number of times that Black women were refused a ride But Judith Giesberg makes it clear that these were acts of resistance.
1: And those women were clearly central
0: to the civil disobedience going on in these streetcars. While putting themselves in harm's way in the city's streetcars, Black women are intentionally disrupting public transit service, reminding Philadelphia of the inequality that still persists. While things look bleak on the streets of Philadelphia, Octavius Caddo and other young Black activists are seeing their work slowly, slowly bend the arc of justice. In June 1866, the US Congress passes the 14th Amendment that extends full citizenship, due process, and equal protection under the law to all people born or naturalized in the United States. The amendment then is in the state's hands to be ratified. Caddo and the Equal Rights League are busy reworking the previously submitted streetcar integration bill to close loopholes and increase fines. They are laying the groundwork behind the scenes, waiting for the right moment to bring the bill up for another vote. The Black community in Philadelphia holds a meeting to try to lift people's spirits and to rally them to continue to defy the law and ride the streetcars, knowing the risks. Black men and women attempt to ride on every line every day to disrupt the system as much as possible. Streetcar violence seems to become a daily occurrence. In February 1867, the politically savvy Caddo and the Equal Rights League finally see the perfect moment to bring their streetcar integration bill to a vote. Pennsylvania's Republican-dominated legislature is set to ratify the 14th Amendment. Now is the time to remind lawmakers that Black men are clearly on the path to gaining the right to vote. Despite some last-minute political shenanigans by Philadelphia Democrats, the Republican lawmakers vote to pass the streetcar integration bill, primarily out of fear of losing the future Black vote. Senator Morrow Lowry is on hand to put Philadelphia in its place. He states, Philadelphia stands disgraced before the world for her conduct in attempting to block up the highway of the colored man in his great and unequal contest in the battles of life. The streetcar bill is signed into law by Governor John Geary on March 23, 1867. But the women of Philadelphia know that a law is only as good as the change it makes in their daily lives. They need someone to test the new law on the streets of Philadelphia. Someone respectable and resourceful. Someone who understands what's at stake in the streetcar fight. Someone who shines in the spotlight and is ready for anything. It's a moment made for 21-year-old Carolyn LeCount. Here's Judith Giesberg on this moment.
1: I can imagine her talking to some of the other women with whom she had fought this battle to say, listen, we're not done. This isn't over. And maybe she spread the word. Be ready because just because we've won back the streets doesn't mean that anybody's recognizing our right to be there.
0: But Count is young, lively, light-skinned, and is already well-known among Philadelphia's Black elite. She's graduated at the top of her class at Philadelphia's most prestigious school, She then goes on to be one of the first black women to pass the city's new examination for teachers. LeCount's also recognized as a performer and is asked to give speeches and provide entertaining readings at key events. And LeCount will soon become the principal at the Ohio Street School. Plus, she is intimate with Octavius Caddo and the other young political activists, so she knows exactly what is in the new law. Now, we don't know that LeCount was actually handpicked to test the new street card law. But it's clear that LeCount was well-prepared for what came next. It's Monday, March 25, 1867, around lunchtime, just a few days after the streetcar bill was signed into law. Carolyn LeCount sets out with her friend Alice Gordon. They walk to the corner of 11th and Lombard Streets, about two blocks from the LeCount family home. Here they hail the 10th and 11th streetcar heading north. This is streetcar number 24, with conductor Edwin Thompson on board. He refuses to come to a full stop for them. As the car moves on, the count calls out for him to stop. The conductor looks at her, looks right at her, and sneers, likely using the N-word to make his contempt clear, and refuses to stop. This is it, the moment she's been waiting for. Thompson has just played into her hands. Perhaps she thinks that she's lucky to have gotten off so lightly, Because she's been physically forced off the streetcar before. LeCount promptly files a complaint with the local magistrate against the conductor and his company for breaking the law by not allowing her to ride. But the judge claims ignorance of the new law and refuses to be convinced when LeCount, who just happens to have a copy on hand, shows him an article from the press newspaper about the passage of the bill. So, LeCount goes to a state office where she receives a certified copy of the new law. The judge sets the case to be heard on the following Wednesday.
1: Well, I mean, part of her had to have said, oh, God, here we go again, right? Judith Giesberg imagines that
0: moment for LeCount.
1: I mean, she was prepared, or that's certainly one way to interpret the fact that she had, you know, the newspaper article that described it, you know, in her bag. We don't know if she was stealing for a fight. On the other hand, she had the weight of history behind her. And she knew what had been achieved, and she'd been part of it.
0: That same Monday evening, Philadelphia's Black community celebrates the passage of the streetcar bill at Liberty Hall on the 700 block of Lombard Street. This was formerly the home of the Institute for Colored Youth before it moved into its new building. It's an enthusiastic event with much of the credit given to the young activists of the Equal Rights League. Octavius Caddo, William Fortin, and David Bowser, all sons from prominent Philadelphia families. Each of these young men gives a speech, along with other leading men of Philadelphia. It was a hard-fought legal battle, and these young men are eager to congratulate themselves. We can imagine that LeCount and her own network of women activists are there to smile and applaud, knowing that the real test of the new law is yet to come. Two days later, Carolyn LeCount is in police court. It's an opportunity for public theater and one that LeCount is more than ready for. She retells her humiliating experience being denied a ride by the streetcar conductor because of the color of her skin, being sneered at. The recent streetcar bill is presented as evidence and the streetcar conductor is found guilty of a misdemeanor under the second section of that law. The conductor must pay a fine of a minimum of $100, which is around $1,700 today, or risk up to three months in jail. The streetcar company pays the minimum $100 fine, and LeCount brings the legal victory into reality on Philadelphia streets. LeCount's successful case and the relevant section of the streetcar law are published in the newspapers on the following day. The court case gives the Black community the unfettered right to pay their fare and ride the streetcars unmolested, regardless of race.
1: You know, sort of in my dream world, you can imagine Rosa Parks saying the same thing. You know, this is just my generation. We're waging the same battle again. And if there were, had been stories about Carolyn McCount that could then be passed along to Rosa Parks' generation and say, mm-hmm. we know what happens. And when you are organized, when you're ready, when you're educated about what's possible, and then you can have these breakthrough moments like these streetcar women have these breakthrough moments.
0: The years following the victory on Philadelphia streetcars are heady ones, full of promise for the Black community. The 14th Amendment is fully ratified, followed by the passage of the 15th Amendment in 1869, giving black men the right to vote. It's ratified early in 1870, meaning that black men will be able to vote in elections that fall. In the following years, black representation in the South leads to significant political involvement in rewriting the former Confederate state constitutions. They expand access to public education and increase women's rights. However, here in Philadelphia, we're not quite ready to give up our racist ways. Hayashita Knight explains.
2: The gains of the war politically for Black people are in some ways much easier to see in the Deep South than in a place like Philadelphia or New York even. And so you have entire state legislatures being populated by former slaves across the South in this period. Part of, part of the way Lincoln makes the war work is by accommodating deep racism among white northerners during the war and being very careful not to press them too hard towards social equality. So in a place like Philadelphia, the, the promise of what legal equality looks like is in, is in some ways bizarrely harder to see than in a place like Mississippi, at least for a short time after the war.
0: In fact, the integration of the streetcars is used against the Republican Party, who lose seats in both the elections of 1867 and 1868. Pennsylvania Republicans shy away from supporting equal rights under this political pressure. So the stakes are high in the fall elections of 1870. In fact, federal troops have to come north to Philadelphia to ensure that black men can vote that year. But no federal troops come to Philadelphia during elections held in 1871. And remember all those thugs who were eager to terrorize the Black streetcar riders just a few years earlier? Well, they're still around, and just as eager as ever. Fights break out in Philadelphia on Election Day, October 10, 1871. Fights are primarily between immigrants caught up in the Democratic political machine and Black voters who are being intimidated because they lean towards the Republican Party. And the city's police don't seem all that interested in getting involved. Three Black men are murdered on Philadelphia's streets that day. One of those men is gunned down at 9th and South Streets, hit with four bullets just around the corner from Carolyn LeCount's home. Tragically, that man is LeCount's fiancé, Octavius Caddo, and he will die of his wounds, even as the Republicans win a surprising victory. Octavius Caddo had achieved the rank of Major during his service in the Union Army and was actually on orders to prepare for rioting when he was shot so he is given a full military funeral on October 16, 1871. Caddo's body lays in state at the city armory at Broad and Ray Streets. Caddo is in full military dress with muskets piled up at his feet, and he's covered in floral wreaths. From before 8 a.m. until 11 a.m., crowds line up to pay their respects, filling up Broad Street from Arch to Vine. The mourners include Caddo's students at the Institute for Colored Youth, who are visibly grieved. Then a full brigade of the 11th Regiment, U.S. Colored Troops, solemnly escorts the body down Broad Street, followed by over 125 carriages, carrying family members, dignitaries, and members of Caddo's many civic associations, with thousands more following on foot. The procession moves through crowd-lined streets, people resolutely standing in the rain that has begun to fall. The funeral moves down Broad Street, past Center Square, which will soon become a construction site for Philadelphia's new City Hall. And then the procession turns west down past Avenue, to where Caddo will be laid to rest in Lebanon Cemetery, surrounded by his community. And there is 25-year-old Carolyn LeCount, standing by the graveside of her murdered fiancé in the rain. She's a model of human suffering and grief. In fact, this moment was recently captured in a 2019 composition by Philadelphia's own Yuri Kane. The piece is called The Lament of Carolyn LeCount. It's a wonderful story. This shining star of her community, winning awards and accolades, and bringing victory to the streets of Philadelphia by helping to integrate the streetcars, now cut down by this terrible loss. Many historians have left LeCount there, grieving at Cato's grave. But the truth is, The 25-year-old Carolyn LeCount lived to the age of 75. Her life went on, no matter how painful it was for her.
1: You know, then we kind of think that's it for her. Like, we don't ever think about what happens for her afterwards, after his death. But she lives the rest of her life the way it began. Giesberg reminds us. She remains an activist the rest of her life. She's there reminding philadelphians of the stakes of the
0: civil war and that what side won and what that should mean for black philadelphians and the rest of her life may not be quite so gripping and fast paced but it shows lecount as a more complex person more real more flawed and i think even more interesting so in the last part of this three-part series we'll take a look at lecount's life after the death of octavius caddo Thank you for listening to the second installment in a special three-part series of the Found in Philadelphia podcast. Don't forget to check out the companion blogs for each episode at foundinphiladelphia.com. There are historical images and maps and a bibliography for those who are interested in that kind of thing. Plus, there are links to places where you can go explore this history online, like virtual walking tours, digital diaries, and even ways to volunteer in the service of history right now. This podcast was made possible in part through a grant from the Athenaeum of Philadelphia. I'd like to thank Dr. Judith Giesberg, Professor of History at Villanova University, for her ongoing work, making so much of her research available online, and also for her time and interest in being part of this project. I'd also like to thank historian Chris Hayashida Knight at California State University, Chico, who has been very generous with his time and research. Also, huge thanks to Dia Jones, a current Philadelphia educator, activist, and creator of the Educate Her blog. You're going to hear a lot more from her in future episodes. I also want to recognize the working from home support of Cyril Tayandier, an associate teaching professor and audio engineer at Drexel University and head of Mad Dragon Recording Studios. I also need to thank Bill Dossett for helping me understand some legal terminology. I'm working hard on bringing you the final episode soon.